Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. Two of my favorite topics for improving our lives are cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness and meditation. Today's guest, Seth Gillahan, combines those in his most recent book, Mindful CBT, a simple path to healing, hope, and peace. This is a great listen for anyone who wants to take meaningful steps in creating a healthier, more peaceful life. Enjoy the show. Good morning, Seth. Welcome to the podcast. For our listeners who don't know much about you, can you start off with giving us a brief bio of your history and then we will dive right into your book? Sure. Good morning, Clint. Nice to be with you. So I'm a clinical psychologist, so I do therapy. I do that part-time now. I used to do full-time therapy for many years, and before that I was a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania doing research on anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. So in recent years I've transitioned kind of away from doing as much therapy and more toward creating uh, books and card decks and other resources to try to bring effective psychological and behavioral techniques to people right where they are. So more kind of direct to the public types of applications rather than doing as much of the one-on-one therapy. And so the book we're talking about today is Mindful Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, which is two of my favorite subjects. Really looking forward to diving in there with you. I actually short digression, I I got in trouble in a little bit in my mindfulness course on my practicum. Our teacher said, it seems like you may have done some reading on cognitive behavioral therapy, because when I listened to your Q&A session, it sounded like you were speaking more from that lens, and that's not technically what you're supposed to be doing in this course, but it was quite fun. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear more about that, maybe, about what was, I think there often is, there's often considered to be a kind of, maybe a contradiction, I guess, or a conflict between mindfulness and CBT. So um, that's, that's interesting that you kind of got called out for that. And the conflict is minor, but where it may have been is I tend to tie, for me personally, if I'm talking to someone and we're talking about negative thoughts, from the mindfulness aspect, we would simply just let those thoughts drift by and not grasp onto them. From the stoic or the cognitive behavioral therapy aspect, we would question those thoughts and not give assent to them. And that's the delta is, well, don't even question it. Don't even tell it it's wrong. Just let it go. Just don't grasp it. And, you know, if someone's having that many negative thoughts per day, I've found more success, and we'll talk all about this today, in questioning the thoughts, in challenging the thoughts, and in reframing them so they don't happen again, so they don't stay in that feedback loop. 
versus just not grasping every single one that goes by. Right. Yeah, I completely agree with that, that it often it seems like there is, you need that kind of deliberate practice of recognizing, oh, I'm having a thought. Is it true? Let's look at the evidence. Okay, I can let it go and think of, you know, an alternative way of seeing things. And just jumping ahead to just let all thoughts go. It's, yeah, pretty hard when the thoughts are so charged, they're so barbed. Just let that go. Oh, you think you're a loser. Just let that go. You think you should end your life. Just let that go. I think we can get there to that point. But I think, I think it's helpful to have that more focused cognitive type of practice. All right, let's dive in on that. So we're talking about mindful cognitive behavioral therapy is the title of your book. And where I'd like to start is you have a line in the book, our spirits provide the will, our efforts provide the means. We need both spirit and effort to live the lives we know we are waiting for us. Through our thoughts and actions, we join our spirits in co-creation of our lives. Can you tell us more about that opening tidbit and where it's taking us? Yeah, and this really for me gets at what I came to with the integration of mindfulness and CBT, that not only were the two not fundamentally in conflict, but that they, they really enhance each other, that mindfulness can elevate CBT and that CBT can kind of, in a way, I guess, maybe give legs to a mindfulness practice. So that kind of that language, that imagery came to me, I mean, partly from talking with my wife about, you know, I had this, this idea in mind, this collaboration between this kind of, this deep part of ourselves that's drawing us to life, it's drawing us to the work that we need to do, and then our, our meeting that in action, the kind of collaboration between that what really feels to me like a deep spiritual connection and pull, which I associate more with the mindfulness end of things. And then, uh, you know, what, what do we do with that? Where, what is the work that we're being called to? And that is more of the you know, working on our, our thoughts and our, our behaviors. It came to me just through my own experience, largely. That's when it really kind of hit me, but then I can see how it is applied with you know, so many of the people that I've worked with in my therapy practice. Even the fact that somebody shows up in my therapy office, to me, feels like so much of the work has been done, that even if the person feels you know, beaten down, overwhelmed, kind of just like they've not given up, but they've, maybe they're losing hope, but there's that part of them that drew them to do this work of therapy. And so I don't think like, oh, okay, now they're here, now we can get started. But wow, they've already started this journey toward healing, and then I'm meeting them where they already are in that, having already kind of taken that crucial step of being drawn from within to what needs to be done. And part of arriving at that as well was yourself went through a bout of depression and challenge and realized that you needed to take your own medicine which is when you started to craft the idea of think, my mind needs to change my thoughts, act, my body needs to take action, and B, my spirit needs to find presence and acceptance. What did that look like for you in your journey before you realized, wait a second, I'm seeing in myself what I'm seeing in my clients, 
And when did you realize you needed to take your own medicine? Yeah, it can be surprisingly hard to really recognize these things in ourselves, even as a therapist who treats these things and thinks about them all the time. So I had developed a chronic illness that you know I'm still dealing with in, in a lot of ways. That started probably, gosh, now I guess six or seven years ago. Wow. But it really kind of, there's a saying about, what is it? Like how pe people go broke little by little and then all at once or something like that. And that was how it felt. I got sick little by little and then all at once. It was like, huh, I don't have as much stamina. Huh, my sleep's not as good as it had been. And then it felt kind of like falling off a cliff. It's like, oh my God, something is really, really wrong here. And so that went on for many months. And I was, and gradually in the process, my life was shrinking. I wasn't able to work as much. Our finances were suffering. I couldn't really get together with friends because I was having so much difficulty vocally. I just couldn't talk that well. And I had to save what little voice I had for my therapy sessions. And so not surprisingly then, a pretty deep depression descended on me and I often just wanted to die. And so in that place, I was doing what I could from a, a CBT perspective, you know, doing as much activity as I was able to and trying to adjust my thinking. But then when I really kind of reached the end of my own resources, that was when I was just kind of, I wasn't trying to do it, but I was just hit all of a sudden with this realization of like, oh, I've reached the end of my own ability to cope with this, but that's not the end. And that's not the end of me, that there was this deeper part of myself that was still there. And that was, I guess, inviting me into a connection that then from that connected place, like I, I talked about that joining with that deeper part of ourselves with our spirit, then from there, it's like, all right, so what do you need to do? What needs to happen now? I feel like I was being drawn then to, to the work that I needed to do. And I mentioned in the book that, you know, at least a couple of friends said, you know, have you thought about antidepressants? You know, there's no shame in taking them. And I agree, there's no shame, but it was so obvious to me that, I mean, first of all, just knowing how effective these treatments can be for, for so many people. And there were such obvious targets for the treatment. My thoughts weren't helping me out. My life had just shrunk so much from all the kinds of rewards that keep us feeling well had been cut out of my life. So yeah, that's when I knew I needed to, as I said, take my own medicine. So I can pause there. I can describe more about what that looked like when I actually kind of jumped into the work. Yeah, let's dive right into the work that you realized you needed to start doing, which is going to inform a lot of our discussion. Yeah. Well, there was a lot, you know, there were a lot of things that needed to change in order for me to feel better. But where I really started is where I tend to start with most people who are, are deeply depressed. And that's with, I mean, the treatment is called behavioral activation. It really just means, you know, doing things that bring some type of reward into your life, either because they're fun or because you need to do them because they give a sense of accomplishment. So for me, that was things like, I mean, on the accomplishment end, you know, stuff I'd been putting off, like, oh, this garage door that's been broken for a while, and I just keep looking at it and, you know, feeling vaguely guilty that I haven't done anything about it, but feeling like, oh, I just, I just can't even, I'll do that later. But putting it off just makes it more likely that I would keep putting it off because I got that little relief from not doing it. So doing those types of things, just scheduling in, all right, what's the first thing I need to do to take care of that darn garage door? And then taking care of that, and it's like, ah, oh, I get that nice sense of satisfaction, like I did that. Every time I walk by it now, it's not partway open. You know, I get the electric opener and closer works again. So a number of those types of things. And then you know, I needed to do more enjoyment. Things are more enjoyable too. So a big one for me was getting back to my garden. And I created quite an expansion of 
you know, the, the kind of little bit of gardening I'd done in, the, in our backyard. You know, we have a fairly small yard, but I had one or two beds back there. I might grow some tomatoes or zucchini or something in the summer. But, but I started all these seedlings in the cold, you know, winter months, preparing for the, you know, an early planting. I built eight raised beds, and I don't really know where I found the energy to do it all. But again, it felt like I was being drawn to just what my body and my mind and my spirit needed. I was answering that call, that pull. And in the process, my mood lifted. I recognized how those thoughts that I'd had about like, oh, you know, your kids would be better off without you, or you, know, you should just end your life. There was a part of me that knew like, okay, that probably doesn't make sense, but God, they felt so true in the moment. Like it truly felt like it would be better for my kids if I were just out of the picture. So it wasn't an automatic or an instantaneous process, but through that work, even though a lot of the physical symptoms continued, the kind of the emotional fallout from it really lessened. One more thing I'll add, Clint, just about the, you know, the mindfulness part of this. I think the mindful awareness really helped me to notice the types of thoughts I was having, you know, that, that just awareness of like, oh, that's a thought, all right? And not necessarily getting in and doing all the kind of discursive, like, well, what's the evidence for? What's the evidence against? But just realizing like, oh, that's a story. That might be true, but that might not be true. And that, you know, changes our relationship with our thoughts, which, as you know, is so much of what mindfulness is about. And also when I was doing activities, you know, mindful presence really helped me to be in them as much as possible. So I was getting the full benefit from, you know, being in my garden or from taking a walk or from spending time with my kids. So yeah, depression is really such a beast and such a relief that it's not a part of my life anymore. And when you were in the garden, something that came to you was, wait a second, when I look at these packages for my plants and my flowers, they have these little care instructions on them, how to care for this plant. But we don't have care instructions for ourselves. What was that discovery like for you? And what did that tell you your care instructions needed to be for Seth? Yeah, this is something that I spoke actually on my own podcast with Dr. Obed Naim about a few years ago. And it really you know, stuck with me, this idea of care instructions. Because I think we often, especially maybe as psychologists and therapists, we focus on technique. We focus on oh, here's a way to change your thinking. Here's a practice to try out. And maybe don't kind of look far enough upstream or, or or not kind of simple enough to just ask, like, what does your life look like? Oh, I mean, do you have just the basic things that we need to feel well? Like human connection with people that we love, like time outdoors, like regular exercise and nutritious food. And so to me, it felt like we were living kind of out of true in a lot of ways. We just weren't aligned with what our basic needs are. I think, you know, we're used to more of a medical model where it's like, oh, there's this symptom. I need some kind of remedy for that symptom. So here, here's a pill or here's a mental hack without kind of asking again, like what's upstream that's creating this disturbance or this unease? So I think the kind of guiding question for me became like, how can I live in a way that's true to my human nature? That's true to my fundamental needs. You know, needs haven't really changed that much over the past, I don't know, thousands of years, even though our lives look so different. Like being on social media. I mean, I was spending too much time doing that and realized like, wow, or not even so much on social media, but just on my phone and realizing like that is not nourishing 
my body or my mind in the way that I could be if I were doing things in the three-dimensional world. That's a lot of what kind of guided my own approach. I think we can all ask that. Actually, that was the original working title for this current book. It was going to be Think, Act, Be, colon, something about discovering your care instructions or something like that. That was kind of the, the general idea. It got changed in the process, obviously, but I think that idea still is is throughout, you know, the different chapters on rest and sleep and nutrition and those kinds of things. Well, yeah, I was going to fast forward because later in the book, you talk about, and we can go there and come back. We don't have to go chapter by chapter is you're not the first guest that as you started to approach your forties, and this is myself included, all of a sudden you find yourself in a state of burnout and a state of issues, your body's breaking down. And that's when you always start to realize, well, wait a second, what have I been doing? How have I been running? How have I been living? And you talk about what I'll call the big three, sleep, diet, and movement. And I don't know if enough people realize how big of an impact those three things can have on our mental, emotional, and physical health. Do you want to dive a little into those three and how changing those helped you with your life? And how we can all adopt those as part of our care instructions. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's interesting because I was always very active. I did a number of triathlons uh, before we had kids. I run three times a week and go to the gym with friends. I would do like HIIT workouts in my basement and yoga. And so that all got cut out when I got sick gradually. And then, you know, again, kind of all at once. My nutrition had always been pretty good, but there are probably some things that could have improved. I was drinking too much. That was definitely not helping me. I mean, throughout my 20s, 30s, and into my early 40s. And I'd always slept okay, sort of took my sleep for granted, but that fell apart too. So yeah, it took a lot of conscious effort to attend to those things, which really does tend to pay off. There's a lot of research showing that exercise by itself can be an effective antidepressant. I think we tend to downplay those types of things because we've been sold this model of you know, depression is a medical illness and you need medication to treat it. And again, nothing against medication, but there are lots of other things that can be effective too. And not just as a kind of like cute add-on, like, oh yeah, do some exercise if you want, can't hurt. But studies showing that for a lot of people it can be effective in and of itself. So exercise is, is crucial. I just saw a study yesterday, actually, I haven't read it yet, but the headline was about adding regular physical movement to trauma treatment and how I believe that can enhance the outcome for trauma therapy as well. The nice thing about exercise too, is there are so many kind of knock-on effects, like, you know, okay, I'm going to go get some exercise. But as you do, then often you're going to be more motivated to eat well, to support the physical movement that you're doing. It can help to regulate sleep, which I'll talk a little bit about. There's the time outdoors and the sunshine in nature, which we're learning more about all the benefits of that. So exercise, yeah, crucial. Sleep, it seems like every week there's a new study on, you know, lack of sleep has a negative impact on some new outcome that we care about. So prioritizing sleep is really crucial. Man, talk about like relationships. You know, when you're not sleeping well, it tends to make you irritable, which doesn't endear you to the people in your life. And then nutrition, That's this one is really interesting to me because... Again, I think there's, you know, for a long time, there was this idea of like, yeah, just eat whatever you want, you know, as long as your diet is, as long as you're not starving yourself or eating way too much, then diet has very little to to say about your mental and emotional health. But there are lots of studies coming out in the past decade or so 
showing that you know, dietary interventions can be like a, a serious treatment for conditions like depression. And there's this one trial, the acronym is SMILES, where they found uh, you know, shifting people to more of a Mediterranean type diet, where again, you're eating things that look like stuff that your ancestors might have eaten. You know, not, not this hyper-processed food that's sort of unrecognizable as food unless someone tells you that it is, but things that look like, you know, ingredients like nuts, fish, vegetables, that can actually have a significant effect on depression. So, so yeah, those three, I think, are such a crucial foundation. We shouldn't neglect those, sort of think that, you know, oh, the real work is about, like, in tricking yourself into feeling better with these mental tools or something. Those are, are important, but there's a metaphor that I can almost think of. But if we neglect those things, it's not going to be, whatever we're, we're, we're working on probably isn't going to be quite as effective. And so someone that comes to you and you're going to work with them and say, hey, we need to, for your care instructions, we need to improve your sleep and your exercise or your movement. What might you prescribe for someone? What's a reasonable prescription for a daily basis, or maybe even not daily, maybe a weekly basis that we should be focusing on? Well, I mean, for changing these things, I always aim for relatively small incremental changes. So if you're going to improve your diet, you know, maybe aim to, you know, start with shifting one meal, like maybe eat more vegetables, you know, at lunch on Wednesday or something and see how that goes. And then you make these changes bit by bit. I'm not a nutritionist, but there are guidelines, you know, about types of things that uh, basically how your plate should look, you know, probably more vegetables than anything else, you know, really limit your processed foods like white bread and cookies and those sorts of things and, you know, get, get enough uh, fiber and protein and fat. So that's, you know, on the diet end of things. With exercise, you know, find something that you enjoy doing. That's why I prefer to call it movement, but, you know, it is exercise. So maybe that's dancing, you know, maybe for someone that's having a, you know, regular dance class or, you know, it doesn't have to be running. If someone hates running, then don't run, you know, do something else that the best type of exercise is the one that you're going to do consistently. Sleep is its own whole thing. Man, I mean, sleep is, for something that basically involves doing nothing, there's so many parts that go into it because we tend to complicate it by trying to do more in order to sleep better. We end up chasing sleep, which is kind of like chasing a butterfly. You know, it's not going to land as long as we're moving. If we come to stillness and then just wait, then eventually it'll, it'll probably alight on us. So we can get into sleep more if you like. But one thing I will mention is that we don't need eight hours of sleep per night necessarily. Some people do, but there's a range. And so the idea is to find what's your amount of sleep that you need and then aim to get that consistently. And aim to get that quality sleep, depending on how you might be tracking it, could simply be, how do I feel? But are you getting quality sleep for the amount of time that you need for your body? That's a wonderful one. And something you talked about that I'd love to dive a little deeper on is you said just that incremental improvement. And one of the challenges for a lot of people that are depressed or stressed is we start to look at, oh, I've got these tasks that I need to do, but they're so big. They're so hard. They're so long. I'm overwhelmed. I'm just not going to start. So you talk about the process of working backwards. And I love that a lot of this stuff comes right back to seven habits of highly effective people is we're chunking that down into 
what's the smallest possible step you can take on that path to action? What does that look like, Seth? And why is that so important for people when they're in that dark spot? Yeah, it is so hard to get moving for different reasons, either because we're afraid of things or we find tasks overwhelming or we, we don't know how to do them or we just don't have much motivation. So usually what I find is that the things we need to do aren't too hard. They're just too big. And so if we can break things down as small as we need to to get started, it's really hard to overstate the value of momentum. I mean, we have momentum when we're doing nothing. It's zero momentum. It's the inertia of non-movement. But that has its own kind of momentum as well. We, you know, we tend to not do things because we're not doing things. So we can just, someone else has described it before, just break the seal you know, on the package, so to speak. Just open it up. And then once we're moving, it doesn't matter how small the step is. As long as we're moving, then we're more inclined to take the next step and the next step. And steps make it bigger at some point. I've used this with kind of ridiculous frequency myself, where if there's something I need to do, I'll just, like I need to, speaking of nutrition, for a long time I was making these broccoli sprouts at home. They're supposed to be extremely nutritious. They're filled with sulforaphane, which is good for things I forget what for, but but Rhonda Patrick talks about sulforaphane a lot. And uh, they're really expensive and highly perishable if you buy them from the grocery store. So I was sprouting them myself. And it's not a long process. If you want to do it at home, it's, it's really easy. It probably takes like a couple minutes a day and then maybe five minutes to get them started. But I'd often sort of put it off like, ugh, I don't feel like doing that right now. So I would do things like, I'm just going to set out the jar and set out the seeds. So I just set them out. And then later on, I'd be like, all right, now I'm just going to you know, pour them in the jar and add some water. By the time I got that far, I was like, I'm just going to finish it. But I had to sort of you know, provide that kind of like an on-ramp in a way, you know, so I'm not just plopped down in the middle of you know, 70 mile an hour traffic, but I have that way of kind of easing into the task. And when I did that, you know, I had these broccoli sprouts consistently, but we can end up putting things off for so long because I think I alluded to this earlier, but when we don't do something, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I could fill the bird feeder. I don't feel like doing that now. Our brain gets a little reward. You know, it's like, ah, all right, yeah, you don't have to do that. You just dodged a bullet there, buddy. But then, that means the next time I see the bird feeder and think like, I should do that. Then I've already been rewarded for not doing it. So I'm more likely to put it off again. So we just find like, all right, I'm just going to set out the bird seed, take that first step. Then eventually, you know, we're, we're sort of rolling downhill and it's easier to keep going. And when you're in that situation and you look at it, we can have high motivation one day, low motivation the next. And often what people try to do in that situation is say, I'm just going to muscle through this with willpower, the problem being that your willpower is an energy system and at some point that's depleted and now you're not doing it through will. And you talk about this concept of using think, act, be to leverage ourselves. What does that look like? Yeah, that's one thing I like to emphasize because there can be a tendency, I think, to think of CBT as it's just like it's advice. It's telling people what to do. Oh, face your fears. Oh, be more active. Oh, you need to add rewarding activities into your life. But I think most of us know what we need to do. It's not like, oh yeah, face my fears. I never thought of that. Or yeah, maybe I should get off the couch. Like, thanks for the advice, man. But it's about providing a, a systematic way of doing these things that does offer that leverage. So if I tell someone you know, in therapy, like, uh, oh, you need to 
you know, face that thing you've been avoiding your whole life. All right, well, I, that's why I came to you, because if I could just do that, I would have already done it. I wouldn't need therapy. So the work of therapy or the work of this approach is to, again, break things down. That's a huge way of, of finding leverage. And working with our whole selves. So mindfulness, I think, offers enormous leverage. Like if I'm, like, again, silly task, emptying the dehumidifier in our basement, you know, to prevent mold from growing down there. I'd often walk by and, just, you know, the light's flashing because the bucket's full and I'd just be like, yeah, I just can't. But the underlying assumption there was that it's going to create, it's going to be an uncomfortable thing to do. You know, it's going to be a little aggravating and I shouldn't have to deal with that aggravation or I can't stand to feel uncomfortable. But with mindful acceptance, we can realize like, well, yeah, it might be a little uncomfortable or I might not love doing it. And maybe that's okay. Maybe instead of asking like, what do I feel like doing right in this moment? I could ask myself, what needs to be done right now? And that was such a relief because it'd been such an automatic assumption of mine to base my actions on like, what do I feel like doing now? And so, yeah, so that's a, a big form of leverage. And then our thoughts too. You know, if I'm telling myself it's going to be overwhelming or you're, you're going to hate it, those are thoughts that are going to lead me away from doing things that would move me toward my goals. But if I can think instead, you know, all right, I'm going to do this one step at a time. I don't have to do it all today. And, you know, other types of thoughts that are helpful instead of pushing me away from doing that task, then I've got my, you know, the mindfulness helping. I've got the, the task broken down so it's small with my behavior. And then I've got my thoughts working as well. So that's that full think, act, be approach. In going in a different direction, I love quotes. And so if we look, you have a couple of great quotes from Marcus Aurelius and Benedictine monk David. And Marcus Aurelius said, if you've seen the present, then you've seen everything. And the Benedictine monk said, by attuning ourselves to the call of each moment, listening and responding, to what our situation brings, which both speak to the principle of mindfulness and coming to the present moment. When did you start to focus on mindfulness itself? And what does that look like for you in bringing yourself to the present moment? Yeah, I was really introduced to mindfulness probably back in maybe mid-2000s. But at that time, I had a lot of resistance to it because I'd come from a, a very religious Christian background, which I'd left. And there were real, what felt like to me, probably just my own issues, but it felt like real echoes of that in the kind of what I sensed as, you know, I was super sensitive to this kind of thing, but kind of moralizing around it. Like, you should meditate. It's the right thing to meditate. How's your meditation practice going? Which kind of just made, gave me like, ugh, gave me the creeps, kind of a throwback to questions I've been asked about, you know, how's your spiritual life? How's your relationship with the Lord? You've been spending time in prayer and with the Bible. So anyway, I got over myself a number of years later. And when I learned how helpful mindfulness could be with, especially with conditions where you can't necessarily, it's harder to change the thoughts, like with chronic worries, you know, with generalized anxiety, where it wasn't so much about like, let's try to convince ourselves that what we're worried about isn't helpful, which just tended to contribute to all that kind of over activity in the mind. And instead accepting that, you know, all right, these worries are going to come and go, and I can be present, and I don't have to let them control my actions. But at that point, and this is maybe 12 years ago or so, I was really using mindfulness as a kind of add-on. You know, you've got some cognitive techniques, behavioral techniques can be helpful, 
And maybe some people could benefit from some mindfulness. You know, we'll sort of throw some of that in if needed. But what I recognized in more recent years is that, so there's a, a triangle in Think Act B or in CBT, which, you know, shows the relations between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So those, you know, each one is kind of a, a, a vertex of a triangle, and they all are connected to each other and influence one another. How I've come to think of mindfulness now is in that model, it's the depth dimension that shows our relationship with our thoughts, feelings, and actions. So if you picture a three-dimensional triangle, which is, you know, the triangular prism, but it's close to like a slice of cake. It's a triangle, if you ignore the curve of the cake, a triangle with depth. And so for each of those aspects, our thoughts, our feelings, our behaviors, we can ask how we're relating to them. What's my relationship to my thoughts? Like we touched on in the very beginning, like do I take them seriously? Do I have to get in there and wrestle with them? Or kind of recognize them as mental events that may or may not be true and don't really require my engagement? With my behaviors, am I present while I'm doing them or am I acting more on autopilot? With my emotions, am I open to them? Am I accepting of my emotions? Or am I pushing them away or chasing certain emotional experiences or allowing them to dictate my actions? So that's the model. And I've forgotten what the original question was. Where we can go with that, because you just hinted at it there, when we think of that mindfulness, a couple key concepts for people are being open and aligned with reality, as well as decentering as a couple concepts. Can you share with our listeners what those look like? Yeah, and this gets back now to your original question, which I remember now about how I apply these things and including in my own life. So with decentering, I've tried to take my thoughts less seriously uh, and my emotions. For example, when I was writing not my current book, actually, I think maybe three books ago, my first CBT book, you know, I had a lot of anxiety about writing it, you know, concerns about how it would be received. I was still at that point kind of imagining my CBT supervisors, like looking over my shoulder and judging, you know, why did you say it that way? And why didn't you include this? And so my feelings about you know, how things were going with the writing would vary day to day. You know, some days I would feel like, yeah, I think this is going to be all right. I think this is going to turn out well. Other days I would think like, I just have like this, all of a sudden be gripped by this wave of anxiety and be like, oh no, this is going to go badly. It's going to, people are going to think it's terrible. No one's going to like it. No one's going to buy it. And then I recognize like, oh, that's just noise. That's just my mind doing stuff. You know, maybe because I'm a little more tired one day, or maybe I had a good writing session the next day. And so rather than taking this thing so seriously as actual information and really identifying with them, oh no, my book is going to be terrible. Oh good, my book's going to be okay. I can just recognize like, yeah, that's stuff my mind does. It comes, it goes, I can just observe that. All right, now I'm having a thought about this is going to go badly. All right, what needs to be done? Well, I'm going to get back to writing. So the decentering part has been really helpful man, opening to my experience too, because actually it was a Stoic, a contemporary Stoic writer, I'm blanking on his first name, Fariola, I think is his last name. But anyway, do you know him? No, but I love Fariola Stoicism. Yeah, yeah, he's got some great books. I got an email. Okay, we will find this. Yeah, yeah, and I can send you a link for him as well. But he sent an email about a new book that he had, an excerpt that was based, I mean, it was kind of classical Stoic ideas. Is it William Ferriola? Yeah, he has some really, I think, great books on Stoicism. And the quote from his book was all about, it was about suffering. 
and I was having such a difficult night that night, you know, just really feeling, uh, feeling lost and hopeless. And the quote was about like, you will suffer in this life. You have suffered, you will suffer. And it's a part of human existence. And, you know, if you can receive all of this with gratitude, then you've lived well. I mean, something to that effect. And it was such a relief, such a relief to realize I didn't have to fight. You know, I could just, yeah, you're suffering. That's what's happening. And it's not that life is screwed up. It's not that like someone sent the wrong package to my address. I'm like, well, this doesn't belong to me. It's like, yeah, this is your suffering. You're a human being. You're going to suffer. This won't be the last time. Everyone suffers at some point. And there was such a paradox, as I'm sure you know, but it's so powerful just to, to let down our resistance, to stop fighting our experience, because obviously you can't win a fight against reality. It's still going to be real. That's just what it is. And that's a beauty in both Stoicism and Buddhism, is just that recognition. I mean, Buddhism takes it a step further. All life is suffering. And, and there's a path to end that suffering, and, and that is our mindfulness and our meditation and our practice. And, and that brings us to meditation. So when we think of mindfulness, what we're talking about is the practice of living this in our daily lives. When we look at meditation, meditation is a means of practice that then helps us be more mindful in our daily lives. But for a lot of our listeners, they may not know put in quotation marks, know how to meditate. And they get lost in this thought. Oh, I'm not supposed to think, but I have all these thoughts while I, so I'm not good at it. And you highlight in the book something that's very important for meditation is the recognition that we're going to drift and then we need to become aware of that. And then we need to return, drift, aware, return. And that cycle will repeat endlessly for anyone, even the Buddha, even the Dalai Lama. They're going to have that same cycle when they do their meditation. So can you talk our listeners through what that cycle looks like? And for a beginner, what are some of the things that you recommend to them for a meditation practice that they can build into their daily lives to help them with mindfulness? First, Clint, that's a really astute of summary you gave there of, of how meditation and mindfulness are related to each other. I'm so glad you described that because we often do think mindfulness is the same as meditation. It's the only way to practice mindfulness is to practice meditation. And, and we forget about, as you said a couple times, it's about bringing it into your daily life. Even though the meditation practice is about bringing that awareness, that quality of attention and presence into your daily life. So yeah, I'm trying to think of the best way to introduce this idea. I mean, we could even, you know, do this for a minute now. You know, if a person, wherever they're, they're listening, if you set an intention to focus on, let's say the breath, I'm just going to focus on the breath for the next minute or so. Take a breath in. You don't have to breathe in any particular way. Just breathing, focusing on the breath. Noticing the inhale as it comes in. Notice the sensations of exhaling as you breathe out. And as you do this, even just for a minute or less, it's basically inevitable that your mind is going to drift to something else. You're going to be wondering, like, why is he doing this? Or how long is this going to last? Or, oh, I think I'm meditating. Oh, I think I'm doing it. Yeah, it's been harder to do it before. Yeah, I always struggle with this. Whatever. Lots of thinking. Mind loves to chatter. Maybe especially when we try to pause, too. Like, 
I think of it kind of like a line of kindergartners walking along, you know, like our thoughts. And then sitting down to meditate, it's like when, you know, the first one stops and then all the kids just kind of like tumble into each other because they're all looking around and, and they just start like, you know, bumping into one another. And our thoughts often do that. They start piling up when we, when we pause. And that's fine. We often have, as you suggested, we have this assumption that, oh, I need to meditate. Okay, I'm going to make my thoughts stop. Oh, they keep coming. And the more we try to make our thoughts stop, then the more insistent our thoughts are. So really, the, there's not really a trick to meditating, but if there were, it would be recognizing that mental activity is not going to stop. And what we do instead is we shift our relationship with that mental activity. So if you're focused on your breath or sounds or whatever you're focusing on, and you notice that the attention has drifted away from it, then you just come back, right? come back to the breath. Now I'm with the breath. And then it drifts away. And you notice, oh, wait a second, I was thinking about my trip to San Francisco, a thousand miles away. Then you come back. It doesn't matter how long you drifted or where the mind went, you just come back to the breath. And that is meditation. It's not like, okay, I'm meditating, focused on the breath. Oh, my mind drifted. Oh, all right, I stopped meditating. Now I'm going to start meditating again. It's all part of the process. I do want to point out, because this has been uh, something I've learned more recently, but the real idea with meditation, it's not to exert a lot of effort and really get good at it. Like, okay, now I'm focusing, I'm working hard at it. But it's fundamentally about letting go of effort and finding ease. And that, and this is something I've learned probably most clearly from a meditation app that I really enjoy called the Waking Up app. That is a great, great introduction and, and practice of what's called non-dual awareness. So not the sense of I'm a meditator, noticing my experience, but more of kind of breaking down that sense of separateness between ourselves and our experience. So letting go of effort and realizing that awareness is already present, that focus is already, or consciousness of our experience is already present. It's not something we create with our minds, but it's more about doing less and allowing that awareness to arise. And I love that idea of effortlessness in meditation. Not something like we sit down, all right, oh, I'm going to meditate. Ooh, I'm going to do some, you know, how many reps of meditation am I going to do? It's just noticing that what I think of as kind of like a, like a stream, like a cool stream that's running alongside of us, that it's always there. And at times we sort of stumble upon it. Oh, yeah, I can just really have a more intimate awareness of this moment. And other times we do deliberate practices like meditation, make the awareness of that stream more obvious. But it's not something we have to, you know, hike a mountain to find or, you know, do hours of arduous practice to come into. It's just, it's right there. It's right here. Wherever you are right now, it's right there. It's right here with me. That's another way that I like to practice mindfulness in my daily life is just remembering, you know, if I'm chopping vegetables, like, Man, chopping vegetables, it's like, kind of blow your mind if you're really in that experience. Not because it's a particular experience, but just because connecting with your actual experience is kind of a trip. You know, it's sort of far out to have any experience at all. Especially when you're bringing yourself right to that moment and saying, I'm not going to focus on anything but what I'm doing right in this moment. When you talk about the importance of meditation, Here's where I see a great tie-in to CBT, because when we look at CBT, we look at one of the central tenets is our core beliefs. 
firmly held assumptions about ourselves and the world. Some of them are useful, accurate. A lot of them can be negative, and that's what we want to work on when we're doing the therapy is those faulty assumptions. In the first key is we have to notice them. We have to catch them. We have to hear that voice that says, I'm a loser. I'll never be good enough. I suck at X. And that's where that awareness that we're building in the meditation with the drift aware return. Now, CBT is a little different. This is what we talked about fundamentally at the start of the show. We're not just going to return. We're going to challenge that thought. And a question for you, because that brings up the concept of negative thought auditing. When you're doing that, what does that look like for you? For someone who doesn't have as much practice with it as you, does that look like a journaling exercise? Does that look like the exercise of, oh, I'll write down that negative thought, I'll write down two or three more logical thoughts, and then I'll revisit them five minutes later and say, which, which is more? Like, what does that process look like for the beginner that you're counseling? And what does it look like for you at this stage of your practice? Yeah, yeah, fantastic question. Yeah, we do tend to be more deliberate about it and more explicit when we're starting out. Again, because it's so easy to just assume that these beliefs are true. We don't really get in there and examine them. So if a person has a thought like, I never do anything right, then, yeah, first we want to notice that thought. So I bring in the being component of this with things like, you know, when you notice that your emotions have taken a sudden downturn, pause if you can, or, you know, as soon as you're able to, maybe take an easy breath in and out, kind of check in with yourself. And then ask yourself, you know, what just went through my mind? Is there a thought there that could be driving that downturn in my emotion? There won't always be. You know, maybe a person just ran out of caffeine in their system or something. But but check in. What's that thought? And then, so usually we we write these things down, especially in the beginning, to really make it to, to literally make these thoughts in black and white, so we can look at them and weigh them. So I write down like I never do anything right. All right, that's the thought. And then the next part is that there's an acronym here that I use sometimes, T, T-E-A, for thought, evidence, and alternative. So the second step is evidence. What's the evidence for that? You know, maybe it's true you never do anything right. So let's be honest, write it down. You know, what are some things you've messed up over the years? So you might write down like, oh, I sent the wrong email to my boss. I you know, messed up that cake, my parents' birthday, my dad's birthday. You know, make a list. And then, you know, is it true you've never done anything right? Is there anything you've ever, anytime you've not screwed something up? Well, yeah, of course, that guy, you know, I've sent thousands of emails to the right person. I've, you know, bought a nice gift for my brother for his birthday, etc. And then based on the evidence, we kind of look at both sides for and against that automatic thought. And then you can come up with an alternative if there is a more realistic alternative belief. Like, yeah, I make some mistakes in my life, but you know, most of the time, things I do turn out pretty well. Some kind of realistic alternative. So we're not BSing ourselves. We're not just replacing the negative thought with a kind of you know, fantastical positive thought, like, I'm the most amazing human being ever, or you know, I'm perfect. The mind is just going to know that's false and it's going to dismiss it. And it doesn't really get at that original belief. Like, is it true that you always mess things up? Well, no. So that's kind of the, the drawn out process. What this can look like with anyone with practice is eventually recognizing like, 
yeah, my mind does that thing where it says like you're screwing up or, you know, it has that theme of, you know, like a radio station, it plays predictable song. Like, of course it's playing jazz, right? It's a jazz station. Of course I tell myself these things at times because I have this negative core belief. So you can recognize that, oh, there goes that thought again, and then let it go. Or you can even have a kind of, sometimes I'll work with a person, what I call a brush off phrase, you know, sort of like, like you're brushing your shoulder off, like, yeah, I don't really have to buy into that. Or, yep, there it goes again. Or like, ha, yeah, right. You know, whatever, whatever works for the person. And then you keep going. And I think that is where the mindfulness and, and CBT really dovetail, which is recognizing the thought and then just sort of, sort of moving on, not getting involved in much of a, a kind of wrestling or a, or a deep relationship with that thought, but seeing it as something that doesn't have to carry a lot of weight. And this is something that I'm a, a huge fan of. And I would say, bar none, had the biggest impact on changing my own personal life is this simple exercise of thought auditing. And when you first start the practice, I don't know if especially, but I'll, I'll use in my case, someone who has a fair amount of ADHD, not self-prescribed diagnosed, is just the thoughts are wild in my head. In that first time I actually ever realized, well, wait a second, I'm not my thoughts. I can actually question these things. I can stop and I can look at them as an independent observer and say, are these real? And like you said, it didn't take long before I stopped needing to write anything down, but rather thought comes in, wait a second, as a stoic, as a human, I have the right to say, well, stop. Are you real? Are you right? Am I going to let you in? Or, and you mentioned doing triathlon back in the day, so you may have known the cyclist Jens Voigt. He had the wonderful line, shut up legs. And so my brush off was, shut up mind. And just that power, Seth, of saying, I will never be a slave to my mind again. My mind will be something that I use how I want to use, when I want to use, and otherwise I can shut it off. Like it's for people who are listening to us who have just been slaves to their minds their whole lives and just those swirling thoughts, which I think we both, you've written, I've read and written, so upwards of 90% or more of our 35,000 thoughts in a day are negative and they're recurring thoughts that we repeat to ourselves over and over and over. And so when we're first able to shut those off, it's just mind-blowing how different our lives can be. Yeah, it really is. Someone else has described you know, our ability to direct our thoughts is really kind of our human superpower. I do want to mention a couple things. One is that for some people, the thoughts may not come as statements. They may be more like images or impressions. So they may you know, sort of see themselves as weak or pathetic, or maybe just have kind of a gut level feeling of like this person, meaning me, is like somehow bad or deficient in some way. So we can recognize those types of, you know, almost more like a valence than a statement and deal with them in, in the same type of way, you know, sort of notice them and then question them, you know, like what's the reason? Is there a real reason for having this sort of negative impression of myself, for example? And then 
I also just want to note that I don't know of anyone who is able to shut these thoughts off entirely, you know, to make them stop completely. But it seems like it's more, for most people, it's more a matter of uh, just getting more practiced at recognizing them, not buying into them. So I don't want someone who's in working in this area to feel bad, like, oh, I can't make the thoughts stop. Uh, some of them will be probably lessen their, in their frequency or their intensity, but I don't want someone to feel bad for not making the thoughts go away or thinking they should have this sort of pristine mind that never thinks these types of things. 100%. I'll clarify it when I say shut off. I don't necessarily mean they disappear because that's the same concept we talked about with meditation. We're still going to have the thoughts. We're seeking simply to not grasp to them or not identify with them or not accept them. And to recognize that, to your point, Seth, the more we question them, the more we challenge them, the less intense. And so if I say to myself every day, Clint, you suck. That first day that I recognize that I say that, oh, that hit me really hard when I heard it. But do I? And I do your tea exercise, which I, I love and I don't recall reading in the book, but is an absolute beauty, is I do that exercise the next day when it comes, Clint, you suck do my tea exercise. Well, wait, I don't. And so each day it's successively less daunting. And at some point that thought may go away and another one's there. And then two years later, Clint, you suck comes back. Oh, wait, I caught you. I'm going to do my tea exercise. And so it's always coming. They're always coming. They're always different, but trying to have the exercise so that you can lower the intensity and so that you can have in your toolkit, I don't need to do my journaling. I can do that when the thought comes and I can do my T exercise in my own head or I may not have to do the E and the A because I've done it so many times. I can just, this will sound strange, but when I first started doing it, I chuckled right there, but separating from the thought, I would hear the thought and I would almost laugh to myself at Clint, like, how could you, a week ago, you would have just accepted this crazy thought, like, let it go. Like, it's, that's not real. And Seth, I don't know if when you started doing CBT, if it was that big of a difference to you to be able to recognize how irrational some of these thoughts you were having were, but just that ability to divorce yourself from it and look at it from an outsider. You can often find that these thoughts are, are so comical in nature that before you learn this, you were accepting those into your daily life. Yeah, it's really striking, isn't it? The things that we can buy into for so long. Like when I, so my, my, I had a previous episode of depression, wasn't nearly as severe many years ago. And when I finally realized what was happening there, I realized, you know, some of the stories that I'd been telling myself, this kind of core belief about, I think it was really around, I'm a failure. Like that was the core belief. And yeah, just when I finally recognized that and all the, like the, the many faces that had ways that that had shown up, it was like these waves of realization just kept washing over me like, oh my God. Like I realized how, you know, I'd gotten a job at the University of Pennsylvania in this uh, beautiful office like, overlooking uh, the city of Philadelphia, this gorgeous view, nice position, assistant professor position. And yet, because of my thought processes, I'd managed to change that into somehow like the fact that I had that job meant I was a failure. Like, and when I saw through that, I was like, what? Like, this didn't even make any sense. 
And now still, yeah, I'll get these types of thoughts, like these quick ones, and I'll recognize them and be like, <laughs> yeah, really, this kind of makes you laugh sometimes. Like, no, that's not what's happening here. That's because, you know, there, there's some like benign explanation for something that I was taking really personally as seeing as like this deep flaw in myself. So yeah, it's not an overstatement what you were saying before about just how much it can revolutionize our lives to have these shifts. Not like these little kind of like tweaking thoughts, but these things that go deeper where you're like, oh, and it kind of, it transforms your whole relationship with life at times. And one of the things that can get us in a lot of trouble with this is you talked about it earlier, technology and social media. So when you look at that, I'm a loser feeling or I'm a failure, social media can often play into that. Did I get enough likes on my post today? Did I get enough listens to my podcast? And we become so focused on that dopamine hit or that rush of results that we forget the process. Did I put out content? Did I publish an episode of the podcast? That's all I can control. I can't control how many people hit the like button or how many people listen today. And one of the things you talk about is this concept of technology fast. And so when did you first start doing those? What does a technology fast look like to you? Do you still incorporate that into your routine? And for our listeners, what might it look like for them when they're first starting to do a technology fast? Yeah. I have to say, Clint, I mean, it's a little funny because, you know, we're obviously we're doing this on technology. This will be posted online. I'm not down on technology in general, but I do think that there's no real, as far as I know, there's not really a control group for what's happening to us right now. You know, just the ways our lives have changed in the past. I mean, I, based on what you said earlier, you know, suggesting what your age might be, and I'm 47. And so it's, you know, I can think back to a time, you know, there was no internet that I was aware of. There's this weird dial-up thing that people did sometimes, like, I don't know, play chess online or something. But there was no, not even Netscape Navigator, for people who can remember that, uh, you know, early internet browser. And life was really different. And I remember, I don't know, a couple of years ago, just feeling heartbroken that that life didn't exist anymore. You know, a weekend where there was just no demands of internet, texting. You know, we lived life, it feels like to me, like so much closer to our actual experience because we didn't have this nearly constant filter between ourselves and our experience. This screen kind of reduces everything to, to two dimensions. So again, not totally down on this, but I think there are costs that we often don't recognize because we're so busy on our phones and don't recognize the cost. Like when someone walks into you, you know, and they're on their phone walking down the sidewalk and they you have to get out of their way and they don't realize what just happened because they're so engrossed in what they're doing. So a fast I think, you know, a break can be really helpful. I remember the first time I did this, I suggested it to my wife, thinking she'd be like, nah. I said, you know, how about if we left our phones and computers at home when we go, you know, on our week's vacation with the kids? I thought she'd be like, well, no, we can't for this reason or that reason. But she said, okay. And I was kind of like, oh, all right, I guess we're doing this. And I thought it was going to be hard. It was great. I just left my phone and computer at home, you know, told people I wouldn't be available, wouldn't be reachable. Uh, not everyone can do that, but if you can, it can be pretty cool. And there were some downsides, you know, like we went to the library in the little town where we were staying and, you know, wanted to get some books for the kids, you know, to read during the week and, and cause we didn't have any, you know, computers or 
that kind of entertainment. And the kids love to read. So we went to the library and they're like, oh yeah, you can get a library card. We just need to see your rental agreement. We said, oh, we don't have it with us. And they said, oh, just pull it up on your phone. I was like, yeah, funny story. <laughs> <laughs> We're on a technology fast. <laughs> yeah, I think we went home and got it and you know, brought it back the next day. So it wasn't convenient, but it wasn't the end of the world. And it was an interesting conversation. You know, you talk to these people about, oh, wow, that's interesting. You know, why are you doing that? Oh, I'd like to do that sometime. We had to refill our meter one time and didn't have any change. So we could have used the little app, just, you know, add more money on your smartphone. But we didn't have a smartphone. Uh, but a guy who was walking by ended up saying, oh, you need quarters here. He gave us a couple quarters. Like, super nice. And it was a connection we wouldn't have made if not for that, for, you know, being without our, our phones. So, I mean, I still have a smartphone obviously still have a computer. But what that experience led me to do was to remove from my phone the apps that were always kind of pulling me in. You know, the ones that have a, a kind of addictive quality. Like for me, it was things like Twitter, YouTube. I even removed my internet browser. So basically I have a smartphone now. I have a kind of the equivalent of a flip phone with, you know, a nicer screen, better texting ability, and I can use Uber. Yeah. Email and a calendar. No email. No email even. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, that's paradise. <laughs> yeah. I have a friend online who's a creator and he was just so tired of emails that he said, I'm just not doing email anymore. And we're like, well, how will people reach you? He's like, they can DM me on the one social media app I'm very present on. I'd rather deal with DMs than emails. I am never emailing again. And <laughs> he doesn't email at all? No, I don't know. Well, I don't know if he doesn't. He just made that declarative statement about two months ago. And it's interesting because he has an email list. He sells product to his audience through email, but he said, I will not reply to emails ever again. Wow. He never gets high on his own supply, huh? Yeah. He's just like, no, I'll send it, but I won't touch it. Wow. No, I definitely still have email, but I realized and this is a real behavioral principle that I love, uh, the idea of binding yourself to the mast. I knew that if I just decided I'm not going to use my you know, email on my phone, I'm not going to check we're only going to check once a day or something. I had tried that on previous vacations. Yeah, I'll bring my phone, but I just won't use it. But inevitably, I would. And so we can't rely on our willpower in the future, even if our willpower is high now. Like, I'm so motivated. I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to stop drinking. I'm just going to decide. I'm just going to you know, stop using social media on my phone. I'm not going to you know, access that on vacation. For most of us, if we have the ability to do those things, we will. And so binding ourselves to the mast comes from uh, the, the Odyssey you know, by Homer, where Odysseus had his, his fellow sailors bind him to the mast of the ship when they were going to sail past the sirens. His sailors plugged their ears, but he kept his ears unplugged so he could hear the song of the sirens without piloting the ship into the rocks and crashing like sailors typically would. And he told his men, whatever I do, even you know, if, I, if I curse at you and plead, like, don't untie me. So the principle there for me is we can import our high motivation into times when we know our motivation is going to be low so that we can stick to the, the goals that we have for ourselves. So I know I can't rely on willpower with my screen stuff. So I had to put these things in place. So now I spend so much less time on my phone and it's great, you know, because I would never be able to resist that urge. I could see my phone just be like, oh, you know, just like a 
a conditioned response. I should check my email. I should check my email. I should check Twitter. But I'm not necessarily going to get out my computer every time I have that urge. So I have a bit more time in the rest of the world these days. And so similar examples to that is also the concept of priming our environment. So if we look at, well, I don't want to eat junk food. Well, don't keep junk food in your house. I don't want to drink alcohol. Don't have alcohol in the house. So remove that product or items that are the vice you're trying to stop. Yeah, this is where I think leverage really comes to mind. So it's so much easier. You know, leverage is about making something easier, making the, the thing you want to do easier. So I can make one decision at the grocery store. I'm not going to bring that stuff home. Or I can bring it home, bring home, you know, cookies or beer or whatever. And then every time I see it, I have to make a decision about whether or not to use it or to consume it. So it's so much easier to make a decision once, but then, you know, I'm home. I'm not going to go out and buy cookies every time I have the urge to have a cookie. I'm not going to go out and buy cigarettes every time I have the urge. It's not foolproof. Obviously, we can still do those things, but it tips the odds more in our favor if we can make those decisions in advance that make future decisions easier or that just eliminate the need for future decisions and future willpower. Somewhere I'd love to pivot with you. So me personally, like you for a period in your life and like a lot of other high achievers have always viewed self-care and stress management as a nice to have. And if I have more time, I'll do that, but not a must have, which it has some good consequences. It has some bad consequences and it has some absolutely devastating consequences. What are some rest prescriptions that you give for your clients and for our listeners that we should move more into the must-have category versus nice-to-have? Well, I think like pausing during the day, stepping out of the, the frenzy of activity, even for a few minutes, can be really helpful to kind of check in with ourselves and see you know, how wound up our nervous systems are and if we need to take some time to kind of let things kind of cool down a bit. And just pausing, I think, gives us, like rest tends to lead to rest. So if I pause and realize like, wow, I am really kind of overstimulated right now, or like this like hyper arousal state of my sympathetic nervous system, then I can go for a walk or do something that's going to help to drain away some of that excessive energy. Because on the flip side, activity tends to lead to more activity. Like I'm busy, so I'm stressed, so I'm, I need to do more because I'm feeling a sense of stress and urgency, and that just winds us up more and more. So I think in terms of nuts and bolts, you know, building things into our day that are going to help to relieve stress, I think is crucial, which can start with waking up in the morning and checking in with our minds. You know, what types of thoughts and expectations do I have? Am I starting the day thinking, today's going to go badly unless you, you know, really kind of outdo yourself? Or can I think, you know, how, uh, how can I be present today? And things are probably going to go pretty well. I just lost my train of thought because I thought I had my do not disturb on, but my phone started ringing and I tried to dismiss it and accidentally hit accept. I had to end that. But yes, okay, decline this time and hit do not disturb. Sorry about that. No, it's perfect timing given what we're talking about. It's absolutely perfect. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, yeah. So build things in. We know stress is coming. We know we're going to be busy. So let's build in some downtime into our lives. Even like a 15-minute walk at lunchtime can be a, a real reset that then has positive effects through the end of the day. And this is a bit more subtle, but we tend to do more than we need to do. And I don't mean in terms of like the volume of activity, although I think that's true. 
But like when I'm chopping vegetables, I often find that this is a common example. I find that I'm doing more than I need to. Like I'm really chopping those vegetables. And like my, my shoulders might kind of be up and I'm like bringing a lot more energy and effort to it than I need to. So when I notice that I can realize like, oh, you don't really have to work that hard. And just kind of, you know, you're just here chopping vegetables. It's really not that big a deal. So we can do the same thing that we're already doing, but just do it with less sort of over, kind of without adding more to it than we need to. One last thing I'll say about this, Clint, is there's a constant drive, I think, that the most of us have to improve our situation. Like, I want to feel better. I want to do more. I want to, like, is there, there there's this, this maybe background hum about, like, is there something I can do to improve this moment? And I've started to find that the deepest rest that we can find is letting go even of that sense of wanting or needing anything to be different than it already is. And just resting in this moment exactly as it is. Like, I don't need to change anything about it. I don't need it to be different than it already is. And that, even now, I can just feel that letting go, that like, yeah, things are okay just as they are. And that can be just deeply restorative. And part of what that brings up is this idea that we outsource our happiness. So we think, like, regardless of what we're doing, we're thinking of that next thing or needing more. I'll be happy when I get a promotion. I'll be happy when my kids are done class or I'll be happy when they get accepted into a sport or make a team or I get a raise or I make more money instead of just being happy right now in this present moment. And what is that idea of outsourcing happiness that you write about? What does that look like for you? And how can we challenge that idea? Well, yeah, it's such a fundamental assumption that it's, I mean, I think it's kind of society-wide, you know, this idea that my ultimate happiness and well-being depend on things working out in a certain way, you know, having certain things, doing certain things. And I mean, material possessions and the activities we do, those can certainly you know, bring us enjoyment and you know, satisfaction and a sense of accomplishment in life. So I'm not suggesting that, that none of those things matter, but I think we tend to tie our ultimate well-being to them in a way that there's this kind of assumption, I can't be okay if this or if that, or I can only be okay if this or that. But if we can see, like, recognize that assumption and see through it, again, just powerfully liberating, you know, just completely transforming our experience and renewing our minds by recognizing like, oh gosh, I don't have to make that person agree with me in order to be okay. Or I don't have to you know, have another helping of dessert in order to feel all right emotionally. It's, again, it feels like one of these subtle but, but profound shifts where it's not denying that things affect us. It's not saying like, oh yeah, you know, you lost a loved one. Well, if you were just mindful enough, then you you would be indifferent to that. But it's more about even when we're grieving, for example, maybe relating to that experience a bit differently, or even when things go really well and we're celebrating, not seeing that as like, I am okay because this happened. It's like, what a nice bonus, this great thing happened, because I was already doing okay. Or, you know, relationships. Relationships affect us so much, for better and for worse. So not pretending that our relationships don't have any impact on us. But again, finding that peace that transcends our circumstances that's always available. 
And I think a real path for realizing that is through mindfulness, is through whether we call it mindfulness or not, I think it's just being in the lives that we already have. I love that. And where I'd love to end a question with you, Seth, is the idea of purpose and work which is that to know our purpose in life and pursue it combined with that importance of having healthy challenge and achievement for each of us, what are some of the things that the listeners should think about when it comes to those two areas? Well, number one, I would say to look for alignment. I think we all have a sense of the types of things that are a good fit for ourselves, whether it's work or you know, volunteer work or education or whatever. And things that are misaligned because they're for someone else or we're doing it just to, you know, for external validation. So finding that internal alignment, I think, is key. And then whatever we're doing to bring our, our full presence to it. I mean, that was a realization that I had in writing this book that, that ultimately, I think, our purpose is to be present. To be that presence is our purpose, to be fully present. And again, I don't say that to mean, well, it doesn't really matter what you do, just do whatever because just be present. Maybe that's true on some level, but I think there are, if we're doing things that are well aligned with who we are, I think it's going to be, we're going to have an easier time bringing our full selves to it. It's going to be easier to bring our full presence to things that are a good match with what we're doing or with who we are. Like for myself, I imagine if I were working in, at some point, someone told me I should, you should go to law school. But I looked into it, it just didn't seem like the right fit. And I can imagine forcing myself to do that, but I wouldn't be able to bring my full self to it because it wasn't, didn't feel like what I was meant to do, I guess. So in a similar way, I think the more we can, more present we are, the more we're going to be connected to the people around us, which provides a sense of meaning and purpose. So whatever a person is doing, I would start with presence and then ask, you know, what helps me to bring more of myself? What, What types of things help me to be more fully who I am? I love that. Seth, we have a final segment called the final four. Do you have a a minute for that? Sure. All right. What's the book that's been most life-changing for you? That is a great question. You know, I would have to say Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior. I think that's what it's called. The Sacred Path of the Warrior. Really opened my eyes to mindfulness. I believe that one may be in my iBooks. I was taking some courses in that area at one point in my life. Yes, Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior. I'm on chapter seven, the cocoon. Okay, so the next question would be, what's on your bookshelf right now? What are you reading? Let's see, right now, I'm reading, I just finished Conversations with Tom Petty. That was awesome. If you're a Tom Petty fan, so good. Oh, wow, beautiful. Oh, yes, who can, oh, yes. Did you see his Live at the Fillmore album that just came out? No, I didn't. But you and I are similar vintages. So there would have been a lot of Tom Petty in the cars growing up for both of us, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely check that out. But oh, I'm reading a book. It's funny. I went to the library and I said to the librarian, any book recommendations? Because I was sort of out. And she said, do you like fantasy? And I was like, uh, I haven't read a lot of fantasy. But anyway, make a long story short, she recommended this book by Terry Brooks, I think is his name, Child of Light. I'm really enjoying that. Child of Light. Is that a newer book by him? New. It's his newest. Yeah. I haven't read any of the... He apparently has, you know, this whole world of like 40 books. He's... Shannara. Yeah, you know it. Yeah. So I'm enjoying it and, and thinking about maybe reading the Game of Thrones books. I haven't seen the movies, the series, but... 
Before you go Game of Thrones, check out a book called The Name of the Wind by Patrick Ruthvis. All right, I'll write that down. He is an artist with words. That first book, The Name of the Wind, is I always list it as my favorite book I've ever read. Right on. All right. I'll definitely read that. And it's just his ability with words. It's like poetry. It's just beautiful. So for you, what's something that you may have purchased in the last 12 months under $1,000 that you've thought to yourself afterwards? Huh, I wish I'd bought this sooner. It's had a good impact on my life. Yeah, I love this question. Let me think about this. I'm looking around. What have I bought lately? Even in the past year, I've had my microphone for a while. I know. Oh, <laughs> I mean, probably something in the kitchen. Instant Pot, but that was more than 12 months ago. Have you done an air fryer yet? You know, my parents actually sent me one, but I re-gifted it, I think, back to them because I didn't feel like I had room on my counters. You'd recommend it, though? My wife has two. Or we have, we have two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they do everything. Like, you cook your eggs in there. Like it's So for her, it's the ultimate parent tool kids' lunches and breakfasts and getting ready for school. And they can throw in a quick little pizza for a snack when, when we're not around. Oh, wow. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's a beauty. Yeah, I'm sure something will, will occur to me once we get off this call. So here's a really simple one for now. Lids, lids for our uh, mason jars. So we have a bunch of mason jars. We put all our bulk stuff in there, beans, nuts, rice. And over time, some of them rust. So I was throwing away the rusty ones. But then didn't have enough lids, so I'd have a jar but no lid. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to buy a pack of 12. Amazing. Now I have more lids than I need. I need more jars. You just gave me an idea for something. What if you could come up with a lid for a mason jar that somehow, based on the way you built it, could remove the oxygen that was in the mason jar? There's something like that. It's not, I don't think it would exactly work for what you're after, but uh, there are these fermenting jars that have a valve on the lid you can suction the air out with. It's, it's a one-way valve, but I don't think it would be completely airtight and wouldn't last, you know, for as long as a canning, you know, life. No, but it would give your, give your beans more life. Because we all have mason jars, so what if we just make them better? Just a simple little lid that people can have for their mason jars. Okay, that's my idea for the day. And for you in the last 12 to 24 months, what's one mindset shift, habit, or behavior that you've changed that's had an outsized impact positively for you? Yeah, I think it's really been, and this has come through working with a voice therapist of mine who does just amazing work, Diane Gary. But it's this idea of doing less so that even if I'm doing you know, the same thing, I'm talking to Clint, I'm writing a paper. I'm not doing it as with as much force. I'm not forcing it. I'm just sort of allowing it to unfold. That it just has endless applications, you know, with relationships, with cooking, with exercise, with writing. So I think that's the biggest one, doing less. I love it. Do less, better. We've had a pretty wide-ranging conversation in multi-directions. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to make sure the listeners get? Well, you know, I didn't answer one of your questions now. I'm remembering um, about how to start a meditation practice. So for that, I would just end by saying, you know, choose something that, that you think you might enjoy. 
you know, maybe you want to do a body-focused meditation or breath-focused or sounds-focused or a walking meditation. There's no wrong way to meditate. So, you know, I think start with something you think you'll enjoy, try it out, and start brief. You know, maybe do two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, whatever, and get a sense for it. And just remember, you can't mess it up. Right? You're not going to be bad at meditating. Just try it out. See what you like. There, Obviously, there are good apps for you know, getting involved in it as well. But those are some things, I think, to get started. I love it. And where can our listeners find you, Seth? Probably the best place, the most central place, is my website, sethgillahan.com. Excellent. Thank you for joining me today. It was a pleasure talking to you. This was great, Glenn. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy.